Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dentistry Unmasked, our podcast, episode number one. David, I'm so excited. I'm so pumped to be here. An all-girl podcast launch. We got two amazing guests and a, and a big topic today that I know lots of dentists are talking about, old, young, midterm. So what do you say, Dr. Pam? I say we hop right into it, and I'm thrilled to have both of our guests here. So we've got, and before we even get to that, we should thank our sponsor. So thank you so much, Aprio, for sponsoring us. It's amazing to be sponsored just coming out of the gate. So it's an honor to be here with you, for you, and all the things. So thank you. All right. I want to introduce both of you, um, Trent Waltris um, from Aprio, and we've got Brian Hanks, who represents himself, but he represents buyers. Trent, I'm going to start with you. Can you give us a little background on you and just kind of intro yourself? Absolutely, Dr. Fan. So glad to be here and, and so excited at the podcast. I'm a dental CPA. Aprio is a dental CPA firm, and we're blessed to serve dentists in all aspects of their career, whether it's uh, early on becoming an associate or walking out uh, towards retirement and transition in the end and anything in between. My role at the firm is to facilitate client success. And that's that can be anything from solving a basic cash flow problem to acquiring a practice to making taxes a little less painful. So everything in between. Go to Uncle Sam. Yeah, yeah they sure are painful. <laughs> Uncle Sam likes his portion. Yes, he does. Brian, welcome and tell us a little about you. Thank you. Um, I started as a dental CPA as well. So Trent, uh, I have tremendous respect for your world. Um, I've worked at a couple of CPA companies. When I worked there, uh, I was younger. I got all the young associate dentists who were buying practices. I saw no one was helping these folks. Uh, so I wrote a book and because I'm a, an accountant and no creativity, I titled the book, How to Buy a Dental Practice. <laughs> hey, that works. That's <laughs> and, the and the title right there, book. And, Yeah. And so now I work with uh, buyers and dentists around the country in transitions. And so my specialty is, is the dental transition space. A lot of people think of me like a broker, uh, but instead of uh, brokering and selling practices, I just work with the buyer and I'm an advocate for them through the process. Nice. Oh man, I love that. So let's piggyback off that for a second. You know, we all work with dentists of different ages. I tend to work with lots and lots of young dentists and, you know, students who are coming in and I see an inordinate amount of people who just, they get stuck because they're getting all this advice from all the best sources like grandparents and parents and, you know, the person who sat next to them alphabetically in class but they get stuck really early on. So Brian, look, like, let me know if I'm a young dentist and I'm looking to buy into a practice, what are my, like, what's my must do right now to prepare? Yeah. You've got a few to do's. All right. So you, you are going to need five things. If you're a D3, D4, you're a recent associate, maybe you're in residency, something like that. Um, and, and David, to your point, I'll just validate the fact most people buy a practice between five and seven years after they're yep. done with education. And after they close on the practice and I call them three months later, six months later, and I ask them, what do you wish you would have done? They all say, I wish I would have purchased four to five years earlier every yeah. single time. So, but to answer your question, um, production history, cash and relationships, mm. right? So when you, you have to have a production history to buy a practice, 
you don't have to do as much as a 60, 70 year old seller has been, that's been working in dentistry 40 plus years and has hand speed and knowledge. You gotta be able to do 80% of what a selling doctor did. So not the hygiene, you know, not, not the seller themselves, but 80%. And you've gotta be able to do most of the procedures a dentist can do in their practice. So if you don't do implants and the seller does 40% of their volume and production is in, in, in implants, that's gonna be a problem. Yeah. Cash, this is tricky, right? You, you feel overwhelmed with student loans, but I'm here to tell you the first, and, and by the way, Trent and all the dental financial planners will agree with me. The very first thing to do is save up some cash in a checking savings money market account. 50 grand is a good number. And then start working down on those student loans. Yes, that cash is going to sit there. Yes, inflation is going to eat away at it a little bit, but that's okay. You're thinking a long game. And that's tricky for folks to wrap their head around, right? Especially if they've watched Dave Ramsey or someone like that. Um, and then relationships, right? Relationships, this is where everybody falls apart. You think like, I know all these people in dental school. I know people from, um, you know, the study club I went to. Um, and this is, you know, when people get ready to buy that practice, the first thing they do is hop online and go to a broker website and, and see three listings in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and think, oh my gosh, these three practices suck. There must not be anything for sale. And that is just not the case. There are lots of practices for sale. They're just not online where you can surf in your pajamas and find them. You have to have relationships. I love it. Brian, can I jump in there? Just yeah, yeah, please. Delve in right quick to that concept of, I don't want to do what the seller does. In other words, <laughs> the implants. Yeah. Jump in on that just a minute. Why, why is that big? Yeah, so when you're buying a dental practice, you're buying an income stream right? Uh, so there's cash coming into the business and there's cash going out. And by the way, Pam, you and I have had this discussion. I, I, I like to remind dentists that the successful, and this is a little bit of a tangent, uh, Trent, but to your point, successful dentists think of themselves as a business owner who happens to do clinical dentistry, not a dentist who happens to own a business, right? So Trent, to answer your question, when you do or don't do what a seller is doing, that affects the money coming into a practice. And then the money that's going out to pay the people, the shine rep, the Benco rep, the dental CPA, everybody that you know is going to get paid. And if you're last in line, which you are as a business owner, um, you know, if you're not doing the procedures, you're not seeing the volume, the collections aren't coming in the door. And, um, you know, it, the the thing that you purchased, right? This dental practice you purchased isn't, it's not going to have the same value that mm -hmm. it is if you do the same. Yes, you could, Trent, right? To your point, let's say it's a bread and butter practice and they don't do anything. You're going to do some molar endo. You're going to do some cool extractions and things. Yeah, you can add, right? But if if that seller is doing, you know, 80 different Invisalign starts every year and you don't want to touch ortho, that's a problem, right? So just make sure that what you're buying lines up. And, and, and I've never had a buyer miss something as obvious as, as like, oh my gosh, I had no idea, no idea he did Invisalign. Well, I have a question about this because I know I graduated dental school almost 20 years ago and it wasn't uncommon for people to leave dental school either, you know, kind of jump right into practice or there were a handful of people that I know of that bought a practice right out of dental school. Are you seeing that still? Or do you find when you're talking to a prospective buyer that maybe they should be out for a few years? And because I would also imagine that 
yes, you want to see the procedures that that seller is doing and you should be able to do them. But if the seller is doing them in a fraction of the time that say a new dentist is going to do them, I would think you'd have to take that into consideration before you pull the trigger on a sale too. Yeah. Trent, David, you want to weigh in first? I've got some thoughts. Sure. I like the idea of buying maybe a few months out. I like the idea of that young man, young lady coming right out of dental school ensuring I do want to live in that city. And I know the kind of dentistry that I want to practice because I've practiced it for just a little while so that they have more confidence going into it. I find that some folks, yeah, they want to wait, uh, like you said earlier, that five to seven year window, and then they regret having lost that much time. But I do like to personally see just a few months where they get their, their skills up to speed. They kind of decide more about their business style, and then they match to a practice and they're like, yep, I know that's what I want. So I like to see a little bit of time, but there's nothing that prohibits them from coming out of dental school and, and buying immediately. Brian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, go for it, Brian. Go ahead, David. So, you know, it kind of makes me think of um, the negotiation process. And and Brian, you mentioned uh, relationships as a big piece of this. And I, you know, I look at the relationship between the buyer and the seller being really important. I also the relationship between who's representing both sides of this transaction is super important. Um, so we dentists maybe can stay the nice guys and gals that we want to be <laughs> and not get into rocky territory. But, you know, I'll give you a, a super quick example and love to hear where you guys go with it. Years ago, we bought a practice and incorporated it into our GP practice. Now, the cool thing for us as GPs is, is everybody had great representation and agreed like, hey, you know, a couple GPs aren't going to be able to do all the cool stuff that Dr. Pam does. We don't have her skill sets. So we landed on a slightly lower number, um, but the seller got a lot of different benefits on the other side of that coin to offset that slightly lower number. And that enabled us maybe to jump into a practice and be highly productive from day one, which I think goes to the conversation we're having here of, a young dentist who maybe isn't quite as skilled with or speed as um, a seasoned pro who's selling. So just thoughts on that. So um, the uh, I, I don't disagree with anything anybody said. Um, I will look to the banks here. And I, mm -hmm. I like to look at what the banks have rules around and what they do and don't do. So the technically correct answer to your question, Pam, is that it is possible for a D4 to buy a dental practice the week after they graduate, okay? Technically, that's correct. Practically speaking, it's nearly impossible. Right. I've had a bunch of D4s. I've worked with D3s that were go-getters, the gunners, right? They're, Brian, I'm going to hire you 18 months in advance. And the day after I graduate, I walk down the you know cap and gown. I'm going to toss it off and I'm going to grab the keys. I'm going to own the practice. And um, when they try to try to go get that bank loan, there are a few lenders out there that that will touch situations where the buyer has a close personal relationship with an uncle, dad, mom. Um, they grew up in that hometown. They used to work in that dental practice as an assistant. Now they're coming back as the dentist to buy it, right? So there are situations. So technically it is possible. It's difficult though. And David, I love your idea about getting creative around how you do that. And if you have a strong personal relationship, green light, thumbs up. Um, but the the big dental lenders, the provides, the B of A's, the Huntington's, the, the you know Columbia TD, 
Um, most of them, although that's this, there's starting to be some exceptions here. And so this is kind of a, a week by week, month by month thing. But today, as we're recording this in Q2 2023, uh, most of the big dental lenders will take a call from that D4. They'll very be very polite. They'll put them on a list and they'll say, call us in 12 months. Because our rule as a dental lender, who, by the way, did you know this? Dental loans are the second safest small business loans on planet Earth. Right, <laughs> right behind funeral homes. <laughs> in fact, in 2022, I won't say which one, but one of the big dental lenders had a negative charge-off rate. So, if you think about like what that a charge-off rate is, is when you lose money on a loan. So, if you have a negative charge-off rate, that means one of the big dental lenders in 2022 actually collected more money on dental practice loans than they lent out. <laughs> so. So I think there's a case to be made here that maybe they could <laughs> pony up a little bit for a few more D4s here and there. Uh, but today the rule is they'll politely take that call and they'll say, call us when you've been out a year. Very interesting. Now, Trent, I want to turn this over to you because you work with buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. And so the situation of a seller varies among individuals significantly. Like there's some that have to sell like right away, whether it's a medical issue or they just decide they're done and they're out. There's right. some that really want to plan for it and they want to figure out if it's the right thing. Um, my situation, the seller didn't really want to sell, but she had some shoulder pain and some, you know, mm -hmm. she needed a replacement. And so as much as her like heart and mind didn't want to sell, her body kind of gave out and she right. had to. And so that made my transition extremely difficult. What advice would you give to the seller? You know, at the end, you know, if you're a practice owner, ultimately you'll be a seller someday. So True. when do you, when do you start thinking about selling and what's the best, most strategic approach? Pam, it's a great question. In in our minds, every practice owner needs to be thinking about selling tomorrow. And the reason we approach it that way is you may be 45 and thinking, well, I'm going to work another 20 years. That's great. But if you had to do a transition tomorrow, is your practice ready for that moment? Do you know your strengths? Do you know your weaknesses? What opportunities are out there to grow your practice? What threats are out there? And then from then till retirement day, you are actively man, uh, managing that SWOT analysis. But let's assume that it's the traditional seller, 60, 65 years of age. Give yourself three years clean your financials up, look at your operations, think about your equipment, look at your payer mix, all those aspects that an astute buyer who's working with Brian is going to be asking about, make sure that's in good condition. You can't do that overnight. Brian's going to do a great job in helping that buyer think through. And if you're an unprepared seller, he's going to start raising questions. Is the value here? So I like to see three years of preparation, the numbers look good, the practice is in order. Because I work with buyers, uh, Trent, I'll go out and speak at different events, CE things, I'll be in a room with a bunch of sellers. I have a more blunt way to say, clean up your financials. Do you mind if I if I say that? Because yeah, I, I never mind uh, offending the sellers, right? They're not my clients. So I tell, you know, and I do, me and my team, we probably did 350 valuations last year. So guys, I have seen everything you can possibly do on a tax return. I've seen it. Right. And 
And by the way, I own a small business too. So I know, I know when I'm standing at Home Depot and I've got my personal credit card and I've got my business credit card, right? The shoulder angel and the devil angel. And, and I, I get it, right? I do. I tell sellers, you have a choice. You can either sell your practice for full value or you can defraud the IRS. Okay. You have right. to make the choice. Well and every, lots of sellers want a code of Trent. Say, okay, I'm ready to sell next year. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know that uh, $25,000 that shows up on my tax return as, um, as uh, repairs and maintenance, you know, ah, that, well, that was the roof for my house. So I'm going to need you to back that out. So you can show the buyer that that's actually profit the buyer's going to have. And guess what? As a buyer's agent, you know, I'm not, I'm not running to the IRS. That's not my job. And I will talk to the buyer and I will tell the buyer, Hey, listen, this 25 grand is actually profit, but here's the problem. The bank legally can't make that adjustment, right? And the bank has to make the cash work in order to lend money to the buyer. So there are laws and regulations here more than just ethics and rules and are you a good person and all of that. So again, I'm not here to tell you which choice to make. You can go ahead and defraud the IRS all you want if Trent signs off on your seat, on your tax return and puts his P10 on the bottom, right? <laughs> or you can get full value for the practice. Well said, Bron. Well said. Thanks. So when it comes to that negotiation process, and I do, I'm a fan of, and you know, pushback, but I'm a fan of trying to unplug myself from that process mm. as a buyer or a seller and leaning on, you know, my experts to really do that. How, what, what are you advising sellers as far as wiggle room? And then let's get to the flip side of as a buyer, like how hard can you push given so our market? I, I notice a lot of sellers who really get, um, married to this concept of percentage of collections, okay? And um, have you guys heard of uh, the, this uh, idea of Lake Wobegon, where every, every person who lives in Lake, Lake Wobegon is above average and, and better, you know, better looking than the average person and a better driver than the average person, right? And um, mathematically, that can't actually be possible, right? You, you, in order to have an average, you've got to have somebody that's below average and someone that's above average. Right. But Here's the mentality uh, that gets a lot of dentists in trouble is if you're smart enough, work, work hard enough, dedicated enough to, you know, get the biology undergrad, survive dental school, buy a practice, have a thriving career in dentistry, very, very naturally, you're going to think you're above average in everything and everything you do, right? And then you go to value your practice and you went golfing three weeks ago with another dentist who sold his practice two years ago. And all that dentist knows is I sold my practice for 85% of last year's collections. And you think to yourself, well, you know, Dr. Dr. Wynn's practice was crappy compared to mine. So if he got 85, I want 90 or I want 95. And that's the mentality that gets a lot of dentists in trouble. So David, to your point, I, I like the way you said that. Um, this is where you don't want to get in trouble. You want to pay for good help. You want to pay for someone that actually legitimately knows what your practice can go for on the open market. You want to remove yourself from that process. So pay someone and pay a good attorney to do some of the negotiations around, um, you know, the, the selling process so that you can be the good cop. They can be the bad cop. You can preserve that relationship with the buyer, with the staff, with the patients, with everybody. Uh, but just don't get wrapped around this. Uh, it, it isn't a, um, it's way more subtle than percentage of collections. Uh, the, the actual, by the way, the, the real measure of a, what a practice is worth is profitability, 
And no one knows that number off the top of their head. It's it's difficult to pull just from a, a PL or a tax return. So um, just just don't fall in the trap of thinking I must do better than the average. And I, the, the only average I know is some number I read on a Facebook group or something like that. <laughs> you know, you know, Brian, I'll jump in one other aspect there. I think you've nailed it. One other aspect is retain professionals to help you. So if you're on the buyer side, listen to what that advisor is telling you. The practice may not be worth it. And you don't want to jump into that pit. Sellers, get an advisor who knows what they're talking about on the value side and don't let them set such a high bar that it's not reasonable. The practice will not bring that value. And most buyers are going to look at you and laugh and say, the cash flow is not there. So get the kind of counsel that's going to talk you through it, be objective. The deal goes a lot better when you've got good counsel. My, my most common conversation, David, to your point about how hard buyers can push is actually to counsel buyers that the price sometimes is, is fair and they should pay it, right? Well, I think so there's this mentality of, I'm about to make the biggest purchase that I'm ever going to make in my life with the possible exception of the house. And I think there's this, this mentality of, I must negotiate, right? The asking price is here. That means my offer must come in lower. And that's not always true because you're not buying, this isn't a cell phone. This isn't a pair of jeans in the mall, right? This isn't something like a, I don't know, like in a farmer's market. You're buying an income stream. And if even if you are able to get 50,000, 100,000 off the asking price, that 50,000 is going to be spread over a 10-year, 15-year loan at 5%, 4%, 6%, whatever that is. And it's not going to make a material difference in your monthly cash flow. Now, uh, careful. I'm I'm not saying buyers should just pay whatever and should overpay for practices. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is it's not required that you negotiate if you like the practice and the number is good and the cash flow is good. Yeah. Well, along that point, what attributes of a practice? But when you know you mentioned like if it's worth it, you know what attributes of a practice makes it worth it? You know, is it obviously just financial? I mean, how does that work when a buyer comes in and they're like? you know, yeah, I see this practice, this guy's selling down the street, it's convenient to my house. Yeah, I think I want to buy it. But they sometimes go into it with their value system a little not where it should be. Mm. What makes a practice worth it? And then for a seller, how do we get our practices to be worth it? David, you've bought some practices, you've been very successful at it. What What did you, you know, how would you answer that? I mean, in addition to the numbers for me, I think there's a sweet spot for team, you know, this whole concept mm. of goodwill that um, we all talk about, but everybody lay people put different numbers on it as opposed to pros like like you guys but you know a, a team that turns over all the time bad a team that's mm. been there 35 years also bad because they're probably walking out the door with me so that's a big factor that, that i look at um practice philosophy is going to be really important how do i like to treat people how do i like to treat patients i think that goes to the procedure mix and and the mm -hmm. and the flow i think the only practices i've ever seen fail and, I, and I'll pass the baton back because I'd love to hear your thoughts. Are there ones where um, there was such a strong persona yep. in the dentist and the character that they brought with the team and then new dentist came in and they were an entirely different human There was that there was no getting past that. So thoughts on that? Jump in, Brian. You go first. No, yeah, I totally agree. I would... <laughs> um... I would add to um, big personality, I'd say cultural fit. I've had a, yeah. oh, let's see. It was a Mormon dentist tried to buy on the south end of Seattle where it's very, very um, heavy Asian population. And there was a language barrier. There's a culture barrier. 
I had, um, uh, and, and, you know, someone with an Arab background try to buy in a Hasidic Jew area of New York. That didn't work out very well. So I think we live in a very melting pot country, very, you know, I think most people can be successful anywhere. By the way, female dentists, I've, <laughs> I have yet to see a female dentist not be successful anywhere at any time. I don't know why that is, um, other than the fact that everybody <laughs> likes you better. Um, but just being aware of uh, some of those factors. So I'm just adding that to the list. Um, yeah. So Pam, I think it's, it's qualitative and quantitative. It, the quantitative has to work. Yes. Right. So collections over 800,000 uh, profit margin of 40% ish, you know, give or take, which is before the doctor pay and after some tax related adjustments that are made. Um, and, and, you know, call Trent, call me if you ever want to get into the nitty gritty of how to do something like that. But after that works, yes, like clinical philosophy. Do you actually like where the practice sits? Can you see yourself walking into and physically being in this space for the next 10 years, right? And yeah, you can update and you can change the paint and blow out windows and do all that. But if you don't like that part of town and you don't like the patients that generally show up at that practice, oof, you know, the numbers can be great, <laughs> but your quality of life isn't going to be awesome. So it's both. Yeah, I agree. It's both. To me, the number one thing I start out with is the culture. Can I see that dentist going into that practice? If I can, it's like, okay, I need to get them to communicate that. But if I can't, how do I get them to see that without saying it? If it's just on a match, I had a young man come to me. Uh, it's been seven or eight years ago and say, I'd like to buy a practice in this specific town. He was an African-American dentist. And uh, he said, I, I looked at it last weekend and I said, well, tell me about it. He told me everything about the town. I know the town. He described it well. He could see himself in the practice. And finally, I said, do you do you realize the racial issues that have originated in that town in American history? And he said, no. And I said, I need you to consider that. And he said, man, I, I wasn't aware of it. If we can't get past the cultural side of the practice, cash flow, equipment, procedures, all that doesn't matter. From the selling side, that's where I try to get the sellers to start communicating, that valuation has got to communicate all those factors. It's more than just the cap rate or the discount rate. It's tell the story of your practice so that that buyer who reads that valuation says, that's for me. That's what I'm looking for. I can see myself there. I want to do that kind of dentistry. I like that staff. I can see myself working with them. The transaction is a whole lot easier if we can get past that moment. Okay. But what about the seller? I feel like the seller needs to be engaged in this process. One of the things that I think is really hard for buyers is the seller who thinks that as soon as the staff catches wind that they're thinking of selling or God forbid, a patient sees a young person walk into the operatory. Oh, they must be retiring. And they think that literally the whole building is going to crumble down and everybody's going to run out of here like an ant farm. I mean, how do you do that? How do you get to meet the staff or buyers? I mean, because so many sellers are so scared about this process. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in from the seller side and then Brian yeah. jumps in from the buyer. And that way he and I can kind of, we'll bounce the ball back for you. Yeah. Yeah. On my side, it starts with a very serious conversation with the seller. You're you're 90 years of age, Dr. Rice. <laughs> Your retirement is not unforeseen at this moment. You're burping dust, buddy. Everybody sees this day coming. So let's think about the staff is not going to be surprised <clears throat> when young Dr. Pam walks in. And at some point, and this is my job as the seller's advisor, I got to coach them through. You need to be open minded. 
you need to be thinking about how to nurture the interest honestly with that buyer. That's your job. I can't talk dentistry. You're a dentist, not me. I have to do all that prep, Pam, with my client so that when Brian comes and brings his buyer, we can have an open, transparent discussion. I can't, I can't allow that to get in the way because my buyer's like, I'm just not going to do it. Well, then you're not ready to sell. Hmm. You, you need to, you need to put your big boy drawers on and let's do this. <laughs> I'll add so Trent, what you're saying, because kind of at at the core of that nervousness around a seller is some arrogance, right? The arrogance yeah. that um 25, 30, man, let's let's be honest, 75% of these patients, if I'm not here, they're not showing up, right? And that 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 fundamentally is an arrogant position. I have found most sellers, once they start to feel like the transition is really going to happen, that arrogance starts to dissipate. But there's another set of arrogance that doesn't, and it's from the brokers. Okay. Now, wow. brokers, if you're listening to this and you and I are on a deal together, I love you. And I've been in the room with you and we've gone toe to toe on this. And I know we disagree, but I'm going to put my point of view out there. All right. The brokers want to control this transition and their goal is to get it to close. So the Bank of America funds the loan and their payment comes out on the closing statement. Okay. Once that cash hit the broker's account, no, they don't care. Okay. Buyer can meet the patients, sellers, you know, staff, anything. So what I tell buyers is, listen, the fact that the factual answer to Pam's question of, I want to meet the staff. They won't let me. How do I do it? The factual answer is you might not be able to. Okay. The seller and the broker may close the deal down enough and have it so tightly controlled that you cannot get into the office to assess the staff, you know, whether or not you're going to get along with them. It's a, it's a real possibility. So you have to be prepared as a buyer to close on a practice where you haven't met the staff and you haven't met the patients. It's a real possibility. I think it's unethical. I think it's ridiculous that people still in this day and age think that that is a requirement that a buyer should have. But I would be remiss not to mention that it's a real possibility. All right. So here's what you do is if you're a buyer and this situation comes up, just ask the seller to put themselves in, in your position and just say, hey, listen, if you were about to drop a million and a half dollars on a dental practice and you've got 18 staff members who you tell me are awesome and you you as a buyer haven't met them, would you feel comfortable you know, going and getting a million and a half dollar loan? A lot of sellers will, will start to click. And then with the broker, what you do is you say, hey, listen, I hired Brian. I've got a full bank approval actually from two different banks, right? I've, I've hired this reputable dental attorney who you know is really good. And I know the seller hired the dental attorney. They're talking. Documents are flying back and forth. Listen, can I come in after hours? Can we do a, a meet the new dentist, you know, night, a month before closing, four weeks, you know, three, four weeks before closing so that I can shake hands, tell them they've all got their jobs. Nobody's going to get their pay changed. Everybody's going to get health insurance the way they still had it. And, and I can feel more comfortable as a buyer. And, and that's um, that's how I've seen things work um, and, and views soften a little bit. But Pam, it's a great question. And it's something that when I get in a room with brokers, oh boy, you should see the fireworks fly. Brian, I'm with you 100%. I know on more than one occasion, I've had to sit a buyer down and say, excuse me, how long did you date your spouse? <laughs> yeah. And when they say, well, it was about two years. Okay, that's a big decision. So what you're asking is, is for this young man or young lady to get married and they've never met their future spouse. And when they think about it, they have to come around. And again, I'm not running for office with brokers, so I'm not concerned about their opinion. <laughs> but 
if the broker on the other side is trying to manhandle the deal and there's not going to be a meeting and we're approved for the loan and I know my buyer's solid, then sometimes you just got to go toe to toe and say, not going to happen. We're going to walk if we can't meet the staff. Unless there's just some far unknown issue, we're going to meet the staff before this, before we ink it. I, I, I agree with the approach, bro. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I love question. it. Pam, that was a pretty good out of the gate episode. What do you think? I think it's been amazing. And I'm a little sad that we're short on time. I'm actually more than a little sad because I have so many more questions. You both will have to come back and spend a little more time with us. Love to. I love it. Trent, Brian, you guys are amazing. I love your approach. If you're listening in, you're watching in, hire the right people. This is a major, if not the most major decision you're going to make in your career, whether you're on the front end or the back end. So do well. Thanks for being here. Pam, last thoughts? Yes. Well, I can tell you if I had to rebuy my practice, and I know I'm kind of got my feelers out for maybe a practice to another one down the road. I want you guys on my team and I'm sure everybody feels the same way. So Trent, Brian, how can people reach out to you? Where can they find you, follow you, et cetera? So dentalbuyeradvocates.com and uh, the book is how to buy a dental practice on Amazon. Those are probably two of the best resources. If you're listening to this, you're a podcast person like me. Um, I put out a podcast too called Practice Purchased. You can search for that on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere. You can find me on aprio.com, A-P-R-I-O. Just hit search button and look for Trent. And uh, a whole host of transition services and anything we can do to help, you'll find right there and you can connect with me. And we can fly into Nashville and come do the music scene and uh, hit the Opry and then come visit you and you'll pay for lunch, right? Anytime. <laughs> come to Nashville. Love to have y'all. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for being here, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank have you. a great one. Thank you, everyone, for watching or listening to the show this week. And thanks to our guests and sponsors on this episode. Please check out our social media at Dr. Pamela underscore Maragliano and at Dental Economics Official. Or you can check me out at Ignite DDS or at Dr. David Rice. And go to dentaleconomics.com to receive dental economics. You can choose to receive DE in print or digitally, and you can also get the details of our Principles of Practice Management Conference on our website. If you have topics or guests or anything you'd like to talk about on the show, send us an email to dentistryunmaskedpodcast at gmail.com, and we will do our very best to make it happen. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.